Good morning, everyone. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I have the privilege today of uh, unpacking this text and hopefully bringing it to bear on our lives. Before we jump in, though, I just want to take a moment and kind of refocus our hearts and minds and pray for uh, the, the chaos uh, or what looks like chaos that's been going on um, for our government and our nation's capital in particular. So we all pray with me as we lift up what's been going on. Uh, Jesus, we know that your kingdom is not of this world, that your kingdom is unshakable, that your will is not thwarted, and that your plans on earth uh, are not um, hindered by uh, the plans of uh, sinful humanity. Nonetheless, we know that you uh, have called us to seek the welfare of the place to which you've sent us, and so uh, we do love the United States. We love uh, the benefits we have been given by it and the benefits it has brought to uh, the world, um, yet we know that no human institution is free from sin or free from error. And God, I do ask that we as Christians that we would adopt an eternal perspective as it relates to our nation. God, we know that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Nations rise, nations fall. Institutions rise, institutions fall. Um, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And I do ask that you would help us be properly invested and properly uh, caring uh, but that we would have eternally minded engagement even as we do. God, I pray for our leaders, both outgoing and incoming, and those who are remaining, that you would uh, cause them to do uh, what is right, that they would seek to exercise their power on behalf of loving their neighbors, not on preserving their own power or preserving themselves. And God, I do ask that you would continue to uh, that you would keep your hand full of favor on the United States and that even in the midst of the chaos and the tension that you would give us eyes to see the ways that you are work for good within it. In the name of your son we pray, amen. Amen. Uh, so we're doing this John 6 text, uh, verse 1 through uh, 59. I'll explain why we're doing so much just in a little bit later. But I really kind of want to get jump straight to like the heart of what I think is going on in, in this text and through these kind of three little stories. And the easiest thing for me right now to do is to talk about is my son, because he's one-ish or a little bit more than one. And you know, for a long while, there's not much to talk about. You know, kind of they just kind of lay there and do stuff, but he's kind of doing stuff now. You know, and so it's kind of more, there's a little more back and forth action going on. In particular, um, he's kind of starting to try to communicate, you know, exercise, uh, his words, has some words and these various things, but there's kind of like a moment that I've realized that's like, uh, at least like my worst fear for a variety of reasons, and that's like when we are um, out somewhere and he's getting really fussy um, and he kind of goes like this for eat and he just goes, e, 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 and it's not clear if he's actually hungry or if he's just, but anyway, it's like if you don't have a snack, it's like the train's coming off the wheels and you have like three to nine minutes, and it's not totally clear. And so, but what happens is if that happens and he gets hungry, and we've kind of got defaulted, like when he's upset, he's probably hungry, which is probably why his belly is like, uh, you know, the youngest child ever with like what looks like a big, huge beer belly. He's, in, he's one years old wearing like three T clothes because we're just trying to conceal his belly, you know? So, he's, so we're going like, when in doubt, he's hungry and it shows, uh, but he's, but like when you're out and then what ends up happening, like as a first time parent, which I feel like, the first time you're a parent, it's mostly you kind of dealing with your own insecurities about uh, being incompetent and having to like make peace with being a general failure. And so you kind of have to, 
you have to just do it. But you're out, and if he's hungry, you don't have a snack. You're like, sorry, everyone, you know, this is, we got to ride it out until we get home. But they're like, the, the shame kind of comes of, uh, I don't have, I, I can't provide what he needs in this moment, and I should have thought better. You know, what type of bad parent wouldn't have brought a snack, but here we are. And so, so there's this, uh, I, I lack what I, I can't give him what he needs. And so it's not just I'm disappointing him, but it's also I'm having to deal with my own sense of disappointment and also my public sense of shame of failing to plan uh, as a parent. But this idea of like, I have nothing and he needs something and I, don't, I can't pull it off and that's causing me to like feel insecure about what's going on here. This is actually a lot of what's going on uh, in particular with Philip in this text. So, so Philip is one that Jesus has us back and forth with. Um, and I think the reason that Jesus hones in on Philip, because here's this huge crowd, they're getting hangry, you know, and it's interesting, like with, when a toddler gets hangry, you know, they get a pass. When an adult gets hangry, uh, we should get a pass. You know, that's how it works. You know, your, your, your anger caused by hunger, that's kind of part of the deal. Uh, and so toddlers are just like adults, they're just less bad at or less good at faking it, I guess you could say, is kind of how, how it works. But Philip sees this big hungry crowd, 5,000 men coming this way. They're getting hungry, and he lacks. We, we don't have what we need to give them to avoid a hangry crowd happening. So Jesus hones in on Philip, and the question is, why does he hone in on Philip? Philip, what are we going to do about this? And Philip feels insecure. He immediately starts jumping to tactics. What are we going to do with money? We're going to go locally. What are we going to buy? And, and Philip doesn't have what it takes to give the crowd what he needs, and he jumps straight to strategy. Um, he starts asking what when he should have been asking who. Not only that, but you see what Philip is, is feeling this shame, because Philip is from where these people are from. So he's concerned, I'm about to look stupid. I've been following around this busted Messiah who can't pull off what we need. And so Philip is, I would imagine in Philip's heart, mind, soul, he's going, what are we going to do about this? And I just kind of love Jesus being like, Philip, what are we going to do about this? And Philip butchers it, and then Jesus takes over. I think part of what's going on here is he's teaching us to ask not what, but who, when we kind of run to the end of our resources, when our nothing isn't doing what it's supposed to do. And so what we're going to see in all, th- uh, there's two miracles and then like a, a teaching here. So um, the bread, the water, and the bread, but the two miracles and the teaching, what we see in the miracles in particular, and here's the big idea that I want to drive away from, is that Jesus overcomes our nothing and turns it into something. When we don't have what it takes to provide what is needed, when we are out, when we um, are at the end of our rope, when our resources are depleted, when our ability uh, runs out, when our faith runs out, when our belief runs out, um, Jesus uses our basically nothing and can use it for something substantial, something significant, something that can actually meet real world needs. And so the challenge for us this morning is I want us to both have the humility to recognize um, that we have basically nothing when it comes to contributing to the kingdom of God. And to have the humility to say, but Jesus is still going to use my basically nothing for something. So not I got it what it takes and not God can't use me, but I have basically nothing and Jesus is going to still use it for something. And so that kind of heart of discovery of what's God going to do with my basically nothing is, I believe, what's driving at uh, in this text right here. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll walk through it. Jesus, I do ask that you uh, would help us see in your word what you have going on here. Um, help us be at peace with the fact that we bring very little to the table or nothing to the table. And I pray that you'll give us eyes to see by your spirit how you intend to use that. In the name of your son, we pray, amen. 
Amen. So, so the main reason we're doing these all 59 verses is because I think the structure of these 59 verses is that they're all kind of making one big point. And so what we have here is this water sandwich, we call it. So it's bread, water, bread. So Jesus multiplies the bread. Um, then he walks on water. I think I have a slide for this, the bread, water, bread. You can show that up there. So bread, water, bread. That's what we're going to We're going to eat this water sandwich this morning, which is, would be a disappointing sandwich, but this is not a disappointing text. So just be clear. So bread, water, bread. And so that last piece on bread is explaining the, why he used bread as the picture. And so uh, even though it's a lot of verses and we're not going to get into the weeds on it, the big picture here is uh, Jesus multiplies the bread and then he basically tells them, you have bigger needs than bread. You need bread of life. And so that's kind of the driving um, thrust of this is Jesus always in his miracles is not just doing a miracle, but he's always making a point. And so we're going to see the miracles and then see the point he's making uh, with the miracle. That's what we're going to do here. So the first one in this first story, um, in the first couple of chunk of stories, the big idea I want to hear is that Jesus overcomes our lack of resources. Jesus is greater than our lack of uh, resources. Um, chapter 6, verse 5 says, lifting his eyes, seeing the large crowd coming toward him, Jesus says to Philip, where do we buy bread so we can feed these people? Um, testing Philip. He did this to test him. Philip answers him, $10,000 wouldn't be enough to feed all these people. Um, then one of the disciples, Andrew, goes to Texas. Well, here's this little kid here. He has five loaves, uh, five barley loaves and fish. And so one, you have this child who's probably a servant child and they have barley loaves which are associated with poverty and these fish are probably sardines so it's not just five loaves and two fish it's five loaves two fish from a servant kid eating the food of poverty so not only do they have basically nothing but it's like basically nothing and something that we don't really even want here's what we got and this is what's beautiful about what Jesus does with this miracle is he doesn't just create it out of nothing. Like in Genesis 1 and 2, God speaks and then it exists by his word he creates. But with all the miracles we've seen so far in John and here we see that God uses the essentially nothing that is there and takes that and makes it something. That he's gonna take this poor servant boy's barley loaves and sardines and turn it into this feast with leftovers. We lack, and he intercedes, and he produces from what he uses. And so he uses the disciples, he uses the servant boy, he uses the barley loaves, that Jesus works with what is there even when it's basically nothing. Likewise, what we see in the next story when Jesus walks on water, we see a similar picture here. Um, verse 19, it says, when they, so it's waves and wind and the ocean, when they had rowed three or four miles then Jesus comes walking up. Any rowers in here? Anybody ever rowed three or four miles? I've once rowed one mile on a rowing machine, and it's like your hands kind of go numb, uh, your arms hurt, your back hurts. I'm not rowing three or four miles. I'm not doing that in an old you know, fishing boat, and I'm not doing that in the winds and the waves. Why did Jesus wait for them to row three or four miles. He like, if you're going to do it, why don't you do it when we're 500 meters in? That would have been really convenient. We could have wasted, like, your back is full of lactic acid. They're fearing for their lives. They're waiting. But Jesus waits until they're about absolutely depleted. And then he shows up walking on water and saves them. In both of these stories, what we have here is we have nothing left to give. 
Our something is basically nothing. We have loaves that can't do the trick. We are out of energy. We're kind of made peace. This is how you drown and die. This is what happens. You run out of energy in the waves. You die. But Jesus, in his poetic sense of intervention, waits until there's depletion, and then he shows up to deliver. We get a lot out of this idea right here. One thing I want to see is like, if you are feeling like I'm on the road three to four miles position, you're going, I don't have much left to give. I don't really have any more energy to contribute. All I have is these five loaves and there's this gigantic need. What we're seeing here is that this is the position that Jesus loves to work with. Jesus works with us when we are most depleted. He shows up. What's the basically nothing that you have that you bring to the table? What's the situation when you're like, my resources can't cover this? What's the, what's the uh, position you're in when you're like, I, can't, I don't have any more to contribute? When you start to feel in that position where you're absolutely needy and I have nothing more to give, this is when Jesus tends to like to work with people. Not when they're self-confident, not when they got a huge margin, not when they're but when they're in a position of going, oh no. Why else would he wait until they rode three or four miles unless he wants to say, I wanna meet you when you're at your most needy, when you're at your most sense of dependent. I want us to also have the heart of faith in this, is that when Jesus allows us to get to that place where we feel like we are grasping and lacking and having nothing, even though we may experience that as absolute suffering and pain, that oftentimes is actually a gift from the Lord. Because he's saying, I'm allowing these things that you're trusting in to run out so that you can learn to trust in me. So we, we lament, why, why is God not shown up yet? Why has he not done the thing I need him to do yet? Why is he allowing me to, you know, imagine on mile two and a half, they're like, how long, oh Lord? And he's like, one and a half more miles. <laughs> That's how long. Sometimes you get an answer. That's how much longer. But a lot of us are in that position in this church. How long, oh Lord? And I want you to know, God has an answer. He just may not have given it to you yet. It's oftentimes he'll wait until we have nothing to give and our resources are depleted, and then he's going to show up. The other thing that we see here in this text is that this is actually an argument for God's divinity, for Jesus' divinity. Jesus is God here. And this is a fulfillment of Psalm 23, one of the most famous Psalms. I want us to read the, just the first section of Psalm 23. The Lord, Yahweh, God most high, the one God of the Old Testament, is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Read with me chapter 6. Um, verse uh, 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there is much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. That Jesus in this moment is fulfilling Psalm 23, saying, even when you seem to lack, you lack not when you have me as your shepherd. Even when you're absolutely depleted, I am causing you to lie down in green pastures and rest. I just want us to ask, what, what does lying down in green pastures look like for you this week? Because it's there. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to prove it. Jesus has done it. 
that even in the midst of chaos and confusion and strife and terror, that I can have makes me lie down in green pastures moments with God Most High. Take hold of that this week. Don't get caught up in the eternal, um, the swirling or the struggle of, of the, the hamster wheel of, of, of the success of the American dream of achieving and accomplishing. Allow yourself to recognize that Christ is in control. He's sovereign. He's rest. And there will be opportunities. There may just be moments. Some of you are more lucky. It may be days. Uh, but there will be moments of I'm making you lay down the green pasture. Jesus overcomes our lack of resources. The next story I want us to see here is how Jesus overcomes our false gods. So not only do we lack resources that we need to do what we think God is calling us to do, not only do we lack what it takes to accomplish what we think God is calling to accomplish, but in the midst of that, um, we fear all the wrong things, love all the wrong things, and worship all these false gods. This uh, text in verse 16 through 21 is actually another argument for Jesus' divinity and an argument that he's the one who conquers the false gods. He gets into the boat and starts across the sea, and here's the thing I want us to kind of take a back, step back from and, and recognize is that we tend to see the ocean and tend to see the sea through these 21st century lenses, right? We know we have goggles, we have high definition underwater cameras, um, we have the ability to, we know and can see what lies beneath. But especially to these first century fishermen, the sea, especially in the Greek mind, but even in like Israel's neighbors, was the place of provision and chaos. The sea was the thing that provided for us, both in terms of commerce, we can travel and trade, but also is the thing that provides for us fish and protein and meaningful things to eat. So the ocean provides for us, and at the same time, it destroys us. We die from shipwrecks, we can't control it, we can't predict it, the waves, the winds. This is this, is this great kind of love-hate relationship with the thing that provides and the thing that destroys. It was untappable, unconquerable, and the ocean and the deep. We see this even in Genesis 1, that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. And it's just this place where the sea monsters, the sea gods dwelt. All types of ancient Near Eastern thought and Greek mythology had like the Poseidon sea god who was like the one who was powerful and destroyed. And so likewise, we see that um, for these first century fishermen, they're out there rowing their brains out, thinking like the sea, like the sea, the thing that we fear and don't understand and lack, under, and lack it's going to get us. It's coming for us. It's going to destroy us. And here we see Jesus just walk on it. The thing that you have that love-hate relationship, the thing that causes chaos, and the thing that provides, a lot of times for us, um, our false gods end up being our work, the thing we love, the thing we hate, the thing that provides, the thing that destroys. Jesus comes trampling right over it. He comes walking right over it, unafraid, unintimidated, unencumbered by the winds and the waves. Jesus doesn't just go walking on water like um, some trickster who's walking on like a glass. It's not like the sea was calm and Jesus goes walking. He goes walking on it when it's at peak chaos. When it's at peak out of control, when it's at peak humans can't control this, Jesus goes trampling across the waves. I also want to see this as an argument for the divinity of Jesus. Job 9.8, the oldest book in the, in the Bible, talks about Yahweh Most High, the one who creates all things. He says, he alone stretches out the heavens and he tramples on the waves of the sea. Doesn't just walk on them, he tramples on them. He, he causes them to be still. He has dominion over them. He is the Lord over nature. He's not afraid of nature. He is the creator. It is the creation. And so we tend to trust and, and fear all the wrong things, and the chaos of those things causes us to spend our mental energy in all these wrong ways. 
One of the things that the, the Jews would have seen in this first century is that the ocean is not what we thought it was because Jesus walks on top of it. This is the essence of false gods, is they are not what they say they are. They promise to provide, they promise to protect, they promise us security, they promise us fulfillment, and false gods never fail to fail. Think about this right now with even um, my son. One of the things that you know, he's good at walking, not good at walking yet, but he has these socks that have little sticky things on the bottom of them so that he can, because we have stained concrete in our whole house, which seemed like a great thing until you have a toddler. You know, so it's just disaster everywhere. Um, but if you put the wrong socks on him, the ones without the little sticky things on him, he just slips and falls, and he always kind of like looks at his feet like, what have you done? <laughs> and he'll look at you because you put those socks on, and there's like this, you're not who I thought you were. You're the, I, you know, like I, I thought I could trust you to put socks that had the sticky things on the bottom, but like there's like this sense of disappointment. And I just like, whether it's politics or economics or finance or employment or a spouse or a family system, um, these things that promise to provide, they never fail to fail. So even in our misplaced trust or misplaced affections, see all these things that I even mentioned, it's not like they're all bad. It's just that they're not God. They need to have the rightful place. The ocean's not bad, and Jesus is putting his feet on top of it, saying, this has a place, and it's beneath me. Where are your, what's the draw for you for false God? My guess is a lot of you aren't tempted to worship the sea, though some of you might be. Um, any of you kind of children in the 60s, you know, the, the ocean, mother, mother ocean, whatever. But I mean, but I mean there's... There's something, there's something really there that's like vying for your affection, vying for your attention, like disproport, like you're, you're spending all this emotional energy on it and it's taking away from the people to which God has sent you to love the most. It's probably because it's a false God. If it's causing you to not love well the people most close to you. Bread, water, Next one we get is bread. And what we're gonna see is that um, the big thrust of this whole text is that Jesus overcomes our unbelief. He overcomes our unbelief. That we bring really nothing to the table. Uh, we lack the resources, uh, the bread. We lack the resources, the energy. And not only that, but we lack the faith. We lack the faith that God requires. And so the question is, how do you get this faith? And one of the things we see, especially in this um, unbelief, is the crowd um, the theme of the crowd is that they are untrustworthy, that Jesus doesn't trust them, and the disciples keep wanting to invest too much energy into what the crowd wants, and Jesus is not having them by it. See, John 6, verse 2, a large crowd was fathering because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So Jesus' reputation is getting out, and they see these signs. Jesus comes, and he feeds them. He meets their immediate physical need, um, and then what ends up happening in verse 15, it says, perceiving then that they are about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdraws. Jesus is not someone who's hungry for flattery. He's not hungry for the crowd. He knows the Father will glorify me when he glorifies me, and until then, I don't need all this chirping. I'm not about it. These people are fickle. What ends up happening later on is Jesus leaves, the crowd chases him down, they try to find him, he goes to the other side of the sea, they all chase him across the sea, and they found him on the other side of the sea, and they say, Rabbi, um, when did you get here? Basically they're saying, today's a new day, we're hungry again, what's the deal? We were hungry yesterday, that was nice. We're hungry again today, and Jesus is not having it. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. You don't want me, you just want my blessings. You don't want me, you want my benefits. 
You don't want me, you want my money. You don't want me, you want my stuff. I'm trying to have people follow me for me, people who want to join me in my mission, not people who just want to mooch off of my generosity. And what do they say? Okay, um, uh, okay, yeah, eternal life, yeah, whatever. Okay, uh, well, uh, verse 30. Uh, then what sign do you do that we might believe that you're the, you're the one who brings eternal life? Basically, they're going, uh, okay, uh, we'll do it one more time, then we'll believe. You know, dance, monkey, do it one more time. Jesus is not falling for this. He's like, you want me to do another miracle? You've seen me turn water to wine. You've seen me heal the sick. You've seen me multiply bread. And then today you're like, do it one more time, then I'll believe. And Jesus is like, yeah, right. You're acting like if I did a sign, you'd believe. That's not how this works. You don't believe in me. You just want my stuff, and he's not having it. He's not swayed by the crowd. What sign do you do? What are you going to do about this? And Jesus says, look, listen, I'm all about meeting physical needs. Physical needs matter, but they matter way less than eternal needs. You want bread? Bread is good, but there is true bread, true bread, greater bread. You want life? That's good. There's true life, greater life. I'm the bread from heaven. And he starts speaking in metaphors, and the Jews just don't get it. They can't get the metaphor. He's going, you eat bread? That's fine. You need to eat me. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they're going, this guy is crazy. And that's uh, part of the reason that even in the first and second century, a lot of people started persecuting the Christians because they thought they were cannibals. Like some guy named Yeshua is getting eaten every Sunday. Pass. Out. Those people are crazy. But it's just like the inability to grasp a metaphor is kind of a perpetual human condition. He's going, just like you take in the bread and it energizes you for life, you need to take in me and be energized by my mission. You need to get busy in the work of God and see what's going on. And they're just not getting it. And Jesus isn't really frustrated by that. Because here's what he says. All, verse 37, I said to you that you have seen me and that you don't believe. You've seen the signs, you've seen the miracles, yet you don't believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come. And whoever comes, I will never cast out. Jesus is going, look, all that the Father is giving to me are going to get this. They will come. Not they might come, not they can come, not they should come, not I hope they come. Nope, not they'll partially come. All that the Father is giving to me will come to me. I'm not threatened by your unbelief. The Father is sovereign over this, and those who are coming to me, the Father is going to give me. And not only that, but when they come to me, I'm never going to cast them out. Those that Jesus has in his hand are in his hand, and they're not getting out of his hand. If you find yourself having an ounce of trust in Jesus, that is because the Father has given you to the Son. And if you find yourself having an ounce of trust in Jesus, you will never be cast out by the Son. You are secure, not like the crowds who are in and out and in and out and do another trick, pony, and then maybe I'll be in. But you're in. You trust. You believe. Likewise, Jesus says, the disciples are all kind of grumbling. He says, don't grumble. This is one of the things the church does that kind of drives me bonkers is when we kind of sit around here and moan and fuss about the unbelief in the world, and the world is unbelieving. He says, don't grumble. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Rather than complaining and, and whining about the atheism and the unbelief, we need to start praying about the atheism and the unbelief and recognize that God saves sinners and we need God to move to save more sinners. We can't just be all fussy about it. We need to pray about it and recognize that the only way we fight our cynicism is prayer. 
And God is going to save who he's going to save, and he does so in response to the prayers of his people. No one can come unless the Father comes. Drink my blood, eat my flesh. What does that look like for us? How do we exercise this belief? How do we exercise this faith? Because this is what faith looks like. So if, if faith is eating the flesh, drinking the blood, being energized by the person of Jesus in order to engage and participate in mission, a lot of times we think about this belief. This is verse 29. This is the work of God. If you want to go, I want to participate in the work of God. This is what Jesus is saying. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who sent. Now we go, how does belief work? Belief feels like this just mental thing. And we tend to see belief through like this kind of Western deal, like belief is giving assent to certain ideas. You know, I believe two plus two is four. But that's not the way the Jews in the first century folks understand belief. Belief is absolutely an exercise of trust. It's in, in any way, it's probably not less than verbal, but it's kind of pre-verbal. I'm gonna talk about my son again. You know, he's, he's walking pretty good, um, and his language is whatever it is, but we're trying to teach him like help and up, and I think he kind of got his wires crossed on that. Um, so I think like, so he just goes, eh, when he wants help, right? So most, which is mostly he wants to get on the couch. He can't get up there yet. So he walks up to the couch and looks at us and goes, eh. So I think it's him trying to say up, help, you know. Or if he's walking and he hits a point where there's like a step, he kind of knows his limits. He's like, I'm going to pull that off, eh. Sometimes when he's like really lazy or like he has a snack, he'll just go, eh. <laughs> like when you're driving and someone like, instead of like waving, they go like, you know, it's like, I'm not raising both hands, eh. You know? But that has warmed my heart regarding his, pers- like this question of belief. Because one, eh, is simultaneously an admission of need and an exercise of trust. I don't have what it takes you have what it takes. Yeah. Right? And this is the heart of faith. I don't have what it takes. You have what it takes. I don't have the resources. You have the resources. I don't have the faith. You're the one who gives faith. I don't have the energy. You have the energy. I, I am about to die because of the weight of my sin. You make a providence for my sin. Yeah. And I want us as Redemption Gateway to be this trusting from the heart sense of I don't have what it takes. You have what it takes, both as it relates to eternity and to our temporal problems in the here and now. This is the work of God to believe. It has everything to do with take my hand and come with me where I'm going. And so I want us to know, you don't have what it takes. That's not a lie. I think there's a lot of like the pop inspiration, like if you believe you don't have what it takes, I want to say, if you think you don't have what it takes, amen, Jesus does, you don't. This is the posture of faith. You know, some of you might think like, what's with those crazy people raising their hands during music? Uh, that's what they're doing. This is why Paul says, I desire that men in every place would lift their hands and pray. Is, it's, is we're trying to physically embody what we think our heart is doing, which is, I don't have it, God, you have it. This is the work of God. So when we lack resources, when we have false gods are worshiping, when we lack the belief, Jesus takes our basically nothing and turns it into something. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your providence. Thank you for this text. God, thank you for being the bread of life. God, I pray that our hearts and our minds and our souls, we will feast on that which doesn't perish. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen.